Today, we continue our study in the book of Revelation, and we've been looking at the letters to the seven churches from the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in Asia Minor. 
And today we come to the sixth letter, the letter to the church in Philadelphia. And we want to begin by looking at what the Lord had to say to this this faithful church, this ch- this church that he motivated to greater evangelistic mission. So look with me to Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that today we might be able to hear what the Spirit says to us as your church and to us individually as your followers. And we pray that you would direct us in this time, that you would encourage us and motivate us that we might be faithful to you in the days ahead, that we might expand our mission effort in this world. And we ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, since we have a city named Philadelphia in Pennsylvania, Most people know that the name means city of brotherly love. And the the city of Philadelphia was established by the Pergamian king, Attalus II, who had been given this nickname of Philadelphus, which which means brother lover, because of his loyalty to his brother, Emenus. And the, the city... The city's location in Asia Minor is important to understanding several of the statements that Christ makes to the church in Philadelphia. Uh, See, the, the city was located in a long, narrow valley about 30 miles from Sardis. And in the valley... In that valley, there was a, a gap in the Hermes mountain range that opened out onto the vast plateau of the east of the, uh, of the, to the east, and it was a kind of an open door 
of sorts. Its location made it uh, an opening out into the eastern part of the world. And this city was established there as a mission city to spread Greek language and Greek culture and into the parts of Lydia and Phrygia. And Philadelphia was so successful at doing this that the Lydian language completely was replaced by Greek. It just disappeared. Now, being situated at the junction of of several important trade routes and postal routes, uh, it became known as the gateway to the east. It was also located at the edge of a, a volcanic region where, there, where the soil there was very fertile and it made it ideal for planting and, and growing vineyards. However, being near this volcanic activity, this constant seismic activity, had its, had its drawbacks. In AD 17, a powerful earthquake destroyed the city of Philadelphia and Sardis and 10 other cities that were nearby. And, and Philadelphia was actually the epicenter of the earthquake. And it experienced many uh, rumbles, many uh, aftershocks in the years that followed. And this was kind of a nerve-wracking uh, uh, experience that left a, a deep psychological scar on the inhabitants of Philadelphia. And for a long time, many of these people went and lived outside the city in, in huts and in booths, uh, afraid to come back into the city. And every time there would, we would come back in and there would be an aftershock and a rumble, they would have run out of the city as quickly as possible to these temporary structures. Caesar Tiberius had this city, the city of Philadelphia, rebuilt. And in gratitude for his financial contribution in rebuilding that city, Philadelphia uh, changed its name to Neo Caesarea, New Caesar. That was its name for several years. So, so, so this was a city that knew what it was like to have a new name. And when Christ came to the church of Philadelphia, and he walked through it and he examined it, he he. He found this, that this church was a faithful church, not a perfect church, but, but a committed church. This was a church that was not ashamed of the name of Jesus Christ, and they were fully proclaiming the gospel to the culture around them. And Christ sought to, to motivate the church at Philadelphia to confidently expand its evangelistic mission to the world around it. And he says, I'm going to open a door for you for this purpose. And I believe that Christ wants to motivate us to expand our mission to the world around us. And I believe that if we would be, we will be faithful, that God is also faithful to open the doors for that opportunity. And so as we look at the letter uh, to Philadelphia, we see three ways that Christ motivates us to expand our evangelistic mission. First, we're, we're motivated by Christ's dependable character. Look at verse 7. He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. 
Now, in introducing himself, Christ reveals three aspects of his of his dependable character. His character, see, inspires and and, and motivates and gives us confidence. His character motivates us to engage in the mission that he has called us to. But this description is is unique in that it's not drawn from the description of Christ given in the vision in chapter 1. Most of the time, that's what happens. But here, it's not drawn from that. This is very Old Testament in its nature. And he says, first of all, he says, he is holy. That's in verse 7. Now, holy carries the idea of being of being separate from. We get our word sanctified or set apart from that word. To say that Christ is holy is to say that he is utterly separate from, from sin. His character is absolutely unblemished and flawless. He is the holy God who is perfect in every way. So he is absolutely dependable as our holy God. He is also true. Now, the word true denotes that which is genuine, that which is authentic, that which is real as opposed to that which is fake or or phony. You see, he is reality. He is the true one and the one behind all that exists. Everything depends upon him. And in the midst of falsehood and perversion and error that fills this world, the Lord Jesus Christ is the absolute dependable truth. What he says, we can build our lives on. So he is holy and he is true and he has all authority. Christ described himself as the one who has the key of David. Now, a key in scripture represents authority. Whoever holds the key has control. And in the book of Revelation, David symbolizes the messianic kingdom. He was the the, the, the patriarch, the original king of Israel, the one who had power and control over the nation. And the phrase, the key of David, comes from Isaiah chapter 22 and verse 22. The, 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 and it refers to an an incident that occurred in the days of Hezekiah. There was a a steward in the court by the name of Shebna, and he was in control of all the king's resources. He was the the treasurer. He was the, the chief of staff, we might call him today. And Shebna was caught embezzling, running a scheme for his own benefit, and he was replaced by a godly man by the name of Eliakim. And so, the, the scripture says in Isaiah chapter 22 and verse 22 of Eliakim, then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. And when he opens, no one will shut. And when he shuts, no one will open. Now, as the chief, chief of staff, Eliakim controlled not only the treasure of the king, but who had access into the king's presence. He, would, he just determined who got an audience with the king. 
And you see, Jesus refers back to that passage in Isaiah, and he applies it to himself. And he says, I am the one who opens and no one will shut. I am the one who shuts and no one opens. I alone have the sovereign control, the authority to determine who enters the mess, the, the, my messianic kingdom. And he goes on to tell the church at Philadelphia that because of their faithfulness, he says, I am not only going to, to open the kingdom to the world, I'm going to open my treasures to you so that you can go into the world. And I'm going to bring many people into my kingdom through you. Now, the apostle Paul used that analogy about himself. On his second missionary journey, he tried to go into the province of of Asia to preach the gospel, but the Holy Spirit forbid him. Remember, that was a shut door. And then when he tried to go into Bithynia on the southern shore of the Black Sea, he was not allowed by the Lord there either. Another shut door. But when he came to Troas, Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia, and he learned that the door had been opened to that place to him, to, to, into Europe. And it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 9, For a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, Paul's commitment to go through that door has changed the history of the Western world totally and completely for all time. Civilization, for that matter. It was a door of tremendous significance which the Lord opened for Paul. And like Paul, the church at Philadelphia had a door of effective service opened to them by the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and Christ calls them, motivate them to step through and take advantage of that door. And I believe that I believe that God has given us in this world many open doors, many opportunities. Maybe He's giving you some opportunities in your own life, doors for you to walk through, opportunities for you to talk to people about Christ. Maybe he's even calling you into the mission field. I don't know. But God does open these doors for us. He does give us opportunities. And when we're faithful, we will walk through those doors and be obedient. You see, he he motivated them to expand the opportunity, and he reminded them of his absolute character, a dependable character, which is holy, which is true, and in which he has all authority. There's a, there's a second way in which Christ motivates us. See, we're motivated to mission by Christ's empowering commission. The Great Commission comes with an assurance that the resources that are needed to carry out that commission will be provided. When we look at Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, it says, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I 
commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now notice again that Christ repeats there his absolute authority. He is in control of everything. And he calls us by that authority to go into the world. And what is it we take with us? His word. That's what we teach. His word is authority. His word is our resource. But not only that, we have the resource of his Holy Spirit. He is present with us to the end of the age. So God's power, God's presence, God's resources are with us, enabling us to do what he has asked us to do. And you see, the same was true with the church at Philadelphia. Uh, He gives them this empowering threefold commission. Christ says in verse 8, he says, I know your deeds. Christ walks among his church. He knows every heart, every thought, every motive, every attitude. Uh, He knows every deed. And and when, when we look at this church, and when he looked at this church, he didn't see anything that concerned him. He didn't see anything that needed correction. Now, it wasn't a perfect church, but it was a faithful church. And consequently, the Lord opened the kingdom to them and all of its blessings so that they could go through the doors that he had called them to. And he seeks to motivate this church to confidently expand its evangelistic mission in the world around it. And he says this, he says three things to them. He says, because you have been obedient, I have entrusted you with greater evangelistic opportunity. In verse 8, he says, Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word. Now, when Jesus says uh, that you have a little power, that's not a, a negative comment on their feebleness, but it's a commendation of their strength. He's not saying that you don't that you don't have power. What he's saying is that you are small in numbers, but you have had a powerful impact upon this city. You have kept my word, he says. And they had not only been obedient morally, but you see, they had been obedient to proclaim the gospel fully, completely in the city, in the world around them. And they were a church that was responsive and ready. And and when this church was responsive and ready, Jesus says, because of that, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. In other words, I'm entrusting you with a greater evangelistic opportunity. And that's a principle we see throughout Scripture. In Matthew chapter 25, in verse 20, Jesus tells the parable about the talents. And it says, The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Again, 
what did he say? You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. That is what Jesus was saying to this church at Philadelphia. Because you have been faithful, you've kept my word, you've been proclaiming the gospel, then I am going to give you greater evangelistic opportunity. Now, if we view this from the standpoint of of history, as we've been talking about, and next week we'll I'll give you a, a full review of the history of these churches. But for now, just think about what this is illustrated in history. But the church at Philadelphia foreshadows the great evangelical awakenings of the 18th and 19th centuries. It kind of began with the Moravian brethren in Germany who began to meet in small groups and to pray. And as they began to study Scripture together, they began to see again God's call, of the, the importance of the Great Commission. And these, these small group of believers began to send out missionaries to other parts of the world. In England, personal evangelism was, was reborn with the Puritan movement. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, was was one of those pilgrims, or excuse me, one of those Puritans. Uh, John Newton, whose songs we sing so often, was one of those as well. And 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 in the, this country, the movement that we know as the Great Awakening, with John Jonathan Edwards and the Methodist circuit riders who who rode horseback across the nation, were. Uh, an important part of this awakening. The awakening also encompasses the great Wesleyan revival and George Whitfield's preaching in, in both England and America. This was a time of expanded missionary endeavors. In 1792, William Carey was sent out as a missionary from England to India, and he founded what we know today as the great missionary movement. Robert Moffat and his famous son-in-law, David Livingstone, went to Africa. Uh, the American missionary, Adoniram Judson, went to Burma and pioneered to work in that country. Hudson Taylor went to inland China and worked there. And we have many other great missionary names that come out of this period of history. Uh, in that time, there were also uh, the, the, was the, the, the birth of the Southern Baptist Convention, an entire denomination uh, that centered around missions. Southern Baptists, with their cooperative program, have, have developed the greatest mission force that the world has ever seen. It was also a time of emergence of great evangelists, names that we know, George Whitfield, John Wesley, Charles Spurgeon, Charles Finney, D.L. Moody, Billy Graham. All of these, see, foreshadowed by the Church of Philadelphia that was obediently stepping through the door of mission opportunity that God gave to them. And Jesus says another thing to this church. Another motivation, empowering uh, commission. He says, because you have been unashamed, I will exalt you before your enemies. He says in verse 8, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, 
I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Christ says, you have not denied my name. In other words, he's saying, you have not been ashamed of me. You've not been ashamed to speak my name. You've not been ashamed to speak to the gospel to the lost world around you. You've been willing to endure the pressure that has been exerted on you by the Jews not to speak about me. And because of that, I am going to exalt you before your enemies. You see, as was the case with Smyrna, Christians in Philadelphia faced the hostility of unbelieving Jews, but but Jesus makes it clear that that this hostility was ultimately from Satan. You see, because they rejected Jesus as the Messiah, they were not a synagogue of God, but they were a synagogue of Satan. They were actually doing the very work of Satan himself in opposing the proclamation of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. And and they claimed that they were Jews, but Jesus says that was a lie. You see, racially, culturally, ceremonially, they, they were Jews, but they were not Jews spiritually. They were not Jews in terms of real relationship with God. Paul defines a true Jew in Romans chapter 2 and verse 28. He says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. You see, amazingly, Christ promised that some of the very Jews who were persecuting the Christians at Philadelphia would come and, he says, and bow down at their feet. Now, bowing at someone's feet always pictures defeat and and submission. The church's enemies are going to be vanquished. The church's enemies are going to be humbled and overcome. And he says, notice what he says, and and make them know that I have loved you. You know, the Philadelphia's churches, uh, the Philadelphia church's faithfulness would be rewarded actually by the salvation of some of the very Jews that were per- persecuting them. Do you know the name J. Seculo? Well, J. Seculo has been one of the preeminent uh, defenders of Christian liberty in our modern day. When he was just 30 years old, he was the first person to stand before the Supreme Court uh, of the United States and defend the constitutional right of Christians to stand in an airport and hand out tracts about Jesus. Now, since then, he has, de- he has defended many Christian liberty cases in, in many courts, including the Supreme Court. He's been there a number of times. What you may not know about Jay is that he was a Jewish boy from Brooklyn, New York, who grew up in a strict kosher home. But when he went to college 
and to begin the process of getting his law degree, he met a young name by the name of Glenn Borders, whom he immediately labeled as a Jesus freak. And over the next year, a few years that followed as they were in school, they had many, many serious debates about who Jesus is. And one day Glenn just challenged Jay to read Isaiah 53. And when he did, and he read that chapter about the suffering servant, he began to think, well, that sounds a lot like Jesus. That sounds like the Messiah. And then he began to do his research like a good lawyer. And he read all the writings of the rabbis who they say this person was that the prophet was speaking of. And nothing satisfied him. Nothing uh, was, was satisfactory to him. And one day, Jay came to Glenn, and he just humbled himself, and he said to him, Jay, Jay said, you're right. Jesus is the Messiah. A short time later, Jay attended a Jews for Jesus meeting and gave his life to Christ surrendered himself in faith. And since then, this Jewish man has been one of the greatest advocates for the rights of Christians in America. Because you have been unashamed, he says, I will exalt you before your enemies. The third thing that he tells them is this. He says, because you have persevered, I will exempt you from the great tribulation. Isn't that exciting? He says in verse 10, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon you, upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Now the sweeping nature of that promise extends well beyond the time of the church at Philadelphia to to all the churches throughout history. This this verse promises that the church will be delivered from the great tribulation that Jesus describes in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. And it clearly supports a pre-tribulation rapture. Now, the, the rapture is the subject of three passages in the New Testament, John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 54, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17. And listen, none of those passages speak of judgment. They all speak of the church being taken up to heaven. There are three views on the timing of the rapture in relation to the tribulation. There's post-tribulation, which means that the rapture comes at the end. There's mid-tribulation, which means the rapture occurs in the middle of the tribulation. And pre-tribulation, which means it happens before the tribulation actually begins. And, And the view that seems to be supported here by this text. Now, there's also some other things that we need to know. The timing of the testing is future. It says it's about to come. It's also limited. It's the hour of 
testing. This great tribulation will only come for a period, for a limited time. It's worldwide. It's about to come up on the whole world. And finally, and most significantly, it's this testing is for unbelievers. Its purpose is to test, it says, those who dwell on the earth. A phrase that is a technical term in the book of Revelation for unbelievers. Something else about this, this hour of testing is also known as Daniel's 70th week. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's called the seven-year period of tribulation. And the Lord's promise is this, that he will keep his church from that future hour of testing that will come upon unbelievers. And see, unbelievers will either pass this test by repenting, or they will fail this test by refusing to repent. If they repent, then they will be saved. If they refuse to repent, then they will be damned. And and this comes in the context where he says in verse 11, I am coming quickly. And the coming that Christ refers to here is different from the coming that he has described in the previous letters. Because those earlier descriptions of him coming, or him coming in temporary judgment on for sinning congregations. I'm going to come and I'm going to deal with this particular matter. But the coming here is Christ coming to deliver his church, not to bring judgment. And he says it's coming quickly. That it describes the imminency of Christ coming for his church. It could happen any moment, at any time. And this becomes, you see, another motive for seizing the evangelistic opportunities that God gives to us because we may not have tomorrow. We must take today what God gives us. And so he says you should be motivated by the greater opportunity that I'm opening up for you. You need to be, over, you need to be motivated by the fact that I am going to overcome your enemies. There, yes, there's going to be adversaries. Yes, there's going to be resistance, but I'm going to overcome it. You're going to be see results. You're going to see fruit as a result of this, and you are going to be delivered from the tribulation. Those are all encouragements, all motivations. There's one other motivation. We are motivated to expand our evangelistic mission by Christ's gracious compensation. Now, at least five ingredients that make up this gracious compensation uh, by which Christ motivates us, and I use the word compensation only as it is modified by the word gracious. See, anything that we accomplish in the kingdom of God is accomplished by God's grace. God chooses to use us. We become the instruments of his working. And God graciously, even though he's doing the work through us, he grants us an incredible uh, compensation, as it were. And the first ingredient is our eternal reward. In verse 11, it says, Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. What kind of crown is he talking about here? He's talking about the Stephanos, the victor's crown. That crown which was the symbol of victors in the athletic games. It was a reward. And notice that this command comes immediately after the Lord says, 
I am coming quickly. That's the context. Now, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Notice the context. Those who love his appearing. He's talking about the reward that we get for being faithful to Christ to the very end. He's talking about finishing the race. He's talking about being faithful to the end. You know, as times get harder and it becomes more difficult to become a Christian, as as hostility increases in our world, as, as our world becomes more and more secular and more and more intolerant of, of Christianity and its, and its truth, we have to be careful that we don't give up, that we don't give in to the, to the worldly attitudes and worldly pursuits. We must not allow ourselves to, to a desire for status or prestige or, or for material things become the focus of our thinking. Losing your crown is not a reference to the possibility of losing your salvation. It's talking about the possibility of losing your reward. All the work that you have done can be lost. Paul talks about this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 14. He says, if a man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. See, this is not talking about losing your salvation. It's talking about the possibility of losing your reward. And Jesus says, hold on to what you have. Don't let anyone cause you to lose your your reward. That reward, you see, is part of the motive to mission. There's a second ingredient that motivates us to mission, and that is our eternal security. In verse 12, he says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. Now keep in mind that overcomer is simply another name for a Christian. We see that in 1 John chapter 5. And a pillar represents stability, uh, permanence, strength, immovability. In the Jerusalem temple that was destroyed in A.D. 70, there are two great pillars, there were two great pillars in front of the building. One was called Jachin, which means permanent, and the other was called Boaz, which means strength. So you see, even in the temple, the pillars are synonymous with strength and permanence. And when you look at the ruins of all of these ancient cities, what usually is remaining? What's left? These pillars, these columns, even in those places that were riddled by earthquakes, you see these columns remaining. See, because they are a picture of security, uh, of stability. And a pillar is a picture of our eternal security in Jesus Christ. And notice what he says. He says, and he will not go out from it anymore. 
Do you remember what the people of Philadelphia did when there would be a, a, an aftershock from an earthquake? They would run out of the city as fast as they could and, and stay out in those temporary shelters. They were terrified. But Jesus says, you and I, we don't have to go out anymore. We don't have to be worried. We're, we're secure. We're safe in the, in the temple of God. We're forever with him. We don't have to worry about the life collapsing on us. We're, we're, we're permanent. We're immovable and secure in Christ. And see, the, there's a third ingredient that motivates us to mission. That is our et- eternal identity. In verse 12, again, he says, I will write on him the name of my God. Now, when you write your name on something, it indicates your possession of that thing. You know, if you go to a party and they've got cups and you write your name on it, that's your cup. Uh, when you, you have a tool, you write your name on it, that's, that's because that's your tool. You want it to be distinguished from everyone else's. And when I sign a painting, uh, you know, it represents my own unique work. And in a similar way, you see, when Christ writes his name upon us, it, 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 it indicates his possession of us. It also in- indicates his, his impression upon us, his, his impact upon our lives. His characteristics are seen in us. He makes us like himself. And see, our identity is in Christ. We have the eternal identity of being in Christ. We also have an eternal citizenship. In verse 12, again, he says, And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out from heaven from my God. See, Christians have eternal citizenship in heaven's eternal capital, which is New Jerusalem. It comes down out of heaven. It's described at length in Revelation 21. And yet, there's a, that, is, that is yet another promise of security and safety and glory and another motivation to mission. And finally, the, the fifth ingredient that motivates us is eternal purpose. The last part of verse 12 says, and my new name. Let's talk about Christ's new name. You say, what is that new name? Well, in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 12, it tells us that when Christ comes again, he is going to have that new name written on him. Only it is a name that no man knows. You say, what is it? Well, no man knows. But but think with me. Every time in Scripture that Jesus is given a name, and he's given many names, it, it always is indicative of the work that he does. When Jesus came to save the world, his name was Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. Uh, he was called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Uh, he's called names like the Word or the Good Shepherd, the Way, the Truth, the Life, the Meaning. But all, every time he's given a name, it's indicative of his character and his work. And in eternity, Jesus will have a new work, which no one knows about. We don't know what it's going to be because redemption and all those things, they're done. Now, we, they will be remembered and he will be honored for them. But Jesus has a new work 
in eternity. And you know what he says? You and I are guaranteed that we are going to be a part of that new purpose, eternal purpose that God has for us. There is an eternal purpose that God has. And so together, these are some powerful motivations for us to expand our mission. So we come finally to our Lord's word of caution. Verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So so stop, look, listen. Think through these letters. Pay attention to them because you see they're spelling out your 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 future destiny. The letter to the to the church at Philadelphia reveals that God pours out his blessings on those churches that are faithful. God gives them greater opportunity in their faithfulness. And he and he pours out his blessings, his riches. He opens the treasure of his kingdom to those churches. And he, and he, and he motivates us by telling us, listen, you have my dependable character to depend upon. Uh, you you have the, the assurance that I'm going to open the doors for you, that I'm going to accomplish this work by my grace, and, and I'm going to compensate you in incredible and wonderful ways in the future. And those are incredible blessings and promises that ought to motivate us. Now, I just want to ask you this question. Are you trusting in Christ's dependable character? Are you really trusting in his character? Are, are you living a life of faithfulness to Christ? Or are you being obedient regarding the gospel? I mean, are you truly unashamed of Christ? Are, are you willing to speak his name to the world around you and talk about him? Are you are you persevering? Enduring? You know, if you aren't being faithful with the little bit that God gives you, you can't expect that he's going to give you more. But if you are being faithful, you can expect that he will give you greater opportunity. Are you putting your hope in the gracious compensation that Christ offers? And, and a final question is, in what way do you need to expand your mission? What doors has, has God, Christ, opened for you? Maybe you're hesitant. What doors has he opened for you to go through? Are you going to go through those doors? What do you need to do? I pray that you will be faithful and that you will be motivated to expand your mission, your evangelistic mission in the world.